Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Tiger Project podcast. This week we have on Dr. Wales, and she's going to be talking about her dissertation, which recently got published into a book. The topic is super interesting. It's about how we as humans have been entrapped by technology in a cycle that we cannot break free from. Yeah, and it explores how art can break us free from that cycle. I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Would you mind quickly introducing who you are and what you do at GCDS for those that don't know you? Absolutely. My name is Dr. Wales, Dr. Louise Wales. Um, I am an art teacher at GCDS. Uh, I also help with global programs. Um, I'm co-director of that with Sebastian Blickman. Um, Otherwise, I just enjoy being around you all. I know that you recently had your dissertation published into a book. Um, and I was wondering if you could quickly explain briefly um, what a dissertation is. The dissertation is a capstone accomplishment when you are uh, studying for your PhD. So the PhD comes in various stages. You do your course of study, which for me lasted three years. At the end of that, you have to pass an oral exam that basically questions you on all the material of those three years. And from there, in, in within that oral exam, you propose your topic and you submit a chapter. That's the written portion of your exam, um, which then becomes your dissertation. From that, you choose a, a dissertation director, and then you spend however long it takes you to write the paper. I mean, I call it a paper. It was Mine was 400 and some pages long, so it's it's a long paper. So could you just quickly give us a brief summary of what those 400 pages were? <laughs> so for me, it was a long trajectory, but I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. The, um, the topic really formed out of two veins of my life. One was a bunch of research I did for my photo MFA, and the other was the research I did for my graphic design MFA. The graphic design MFA was really about technology versus the human mind in terms of ideation and creativity. Uh, my photography MFA had to do with the work that I was making and who my influences were that nourished that work and what it meant to me. Um, so when I came into the PhD program, I naturally was attracted to this particular essay by a fairly controversial uh, philosopher by the name of Martin Heidegger, but he wrote an essay called The Question Concerning Technology. That was where I reacted very strongly to what he said and actually subscribed to what he believes, which is that we've become enmeshed and entrapped in technological and what he calls in framing or in German is gestell. And so I, I looked at that. He doesn't offer any answers to that question. He poses this question at the end, which basically says, you know, we've, we're stuck. We're mired in this problem. The only way out of this problem is through the arts. And boom, that's it. He leaves you there hanging. Like the pro- and, and he also proposes that the solution is in the problem. So the solution is in that kind of entrapment. So that's what drew, drew me to the topic. And, um, and I, I'm very pragmatic generally in the way I think. So I thought, well, well what, what are the, who are the, who's answering this question? And is anybody able to get us out of this mess that we're, what, that we've gotten ourselves into? Um, and so I started reading and looking at artists, reading about and looking at artists who 
from a technological point of view, wake us up in some form or another. This seems like a really cool idea. I was curious if any key parts of your topic kind of shifted throughout the um, process, because it seems like you have like a really solid idea now because you're finished with it. But I know from when I'm doing projects, it like kind of shifts a lot, and that's something that stresses me out. So I'm curious if there's any part you remember like changing a lot. I don't necessarily think, I think rather than change it, it was, it grew, right? Mm -hmm. So as I looked at the artist and as I sort of deliberated on which artists I would use in the book and, or in the paper at the time and, and whose work I really wanted to go deep and examine, what would happen is I would start diving in. I would go to lectures by the artists or, or panel discussions. For instance, when Christian Boltonski was alive, he did a panel discussion at the Jewish Museum in New York, and I sat riveted by the conversation. Um, and, and the more you dig into something, the more avenues open up, right? So as I was looking at the work of this artist, Christophe Wodyshko, I was reading a guy called Michel Foucault and others. There was a, a whole concept of fearless speech I had never been introduced to those writings before I started to look at the work. And so instead of change, it it, it was more like a, a flower opening up and you could see more nuances of the ideas as they were analyzed or as they as they related to the writing that I was reading. Um, so it's it's a balance of art and philosophy. And 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 you look at the philosophy through the art. And so as the more I looked at the art, the more ideas opened up in this sort of philosophical realm. So it was really hard with saying, okay, there are enough players in this conversation. <laughs> there are enough ideas that pack into this. I need to weed out some of the extra stuff. That was the part that was hard, was to say, okay, I can see how Hannah Arendt's ideas relate here. I really like what Jacques you know, Derrida says about this, but okay, do we need all these players in this chapter? Who's going to get cut? And that was the hardest part. Uh, why did you choose these specific four artists? And what about their work or art interested you? That's an easy question. Each each of them. So there, there are five in total. There are three individuals in one partnership. So um, Norfshan, Mirza, and Brad Butler are, are a partnership. And they do most of their work in collaboration with each other. Um, because each artist and the work that that particular artist presents to the world made me stop dead in my tracks. So it was from a very personal place of, and I can't say anything like holy. So it was a place of, of, of wow, okay, this is provocative. This is, this is making me redress how I think about this particular situation, or it's making me rethink how art can be a force in the world. So um, if you've, I highly recommend if Rudishko, for instance, does another projection in New York, and if I hear about it, I will take you all to see what he does, which he literally animates statues with the words and faces and figures of soldiers, or he, dig he digs into our memories, right? So that's really provocative. It's using technology in a way that makes us pause and reconsider what we're looking at, what we're hearing, what we're seeing. It's very sensory. Um, so each artist did that for me. Each artist was an absolute, you know, 
arrestation, arrestation of my just it just made me pause. And and I chose them I, and I laid them out in the way that they are because they start from kind of lo-fi tech in Martha Rosler's photo montage work and some of her installation things to Boltonski, which is very much artifact driven, to really high tech with with Mirza and Butler at the end because their work is just entirely driven by 21st century technology. You're talking about um, technology as a form of entrapment, but also like technology has been used in these artists as a way to really enhance art so much. So do you really see it as a beneficial tool or do you think that it's kind of evil that way? I think it's both. I think that's the paradox, right? It's technology. Here we are in a tiny room at GCDS with microphones and a computer and your questions are on your, your devices, right? Technolo- it's both. I think the gift of technology is what it opens up for us. I think the, the psychological um, entrapment is powerful. So we're seeing it playing out in real time. In our, in our societies at the moment. I mean, look at what's going on with Facebook. Look what's going on with disinformation. Look what's going on with um, the speed with which falsehoods can be sh- you know, shifted about. And so there's, there's a real case to be made for a questioning disposition that, that asks, what is, what is this that's happening? So the tools and the devices are super helpful. I mean, they help us in, in operating arenas. They help us, you know, with uh, really sophisticated medical interventions. However, if you look at what's happening globally with, with technological disinformation, this kind of strange tribalism that's coming from this lack of questioning, then you see the paradox, right? You see the fact that what's really helpful to us can also be incredibly damning. Um, it's 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 it, that's the thing that that the danger lies. The solution lies lies within that danger. Is finding that solution, finding your way out of it, which for me is reinstilling a questioning disposition in human beings, so that we're not just you know blindly absorbing what's being fed to us. So it, it sounds like one of the biggest questions that you come across is, do the pros of technology outweigh the consequences or the cons? So through your research, do you think you've gained enough knowledge to come to a conclusion? I think that the, the requirement, and this is, the, again, this is paradoxical, right? The, the requirement is that people open their minds up enough to stop, pause, and think. So when the, the, the question concerning technology, the, the sort of inclusion of Heidegger, starts from the premise of we've stopped thinking, we're no longer thinking. We're no longer using that which makes human beings special, which is our ability to question, to create, to be, to be thinkers in our own right. And if you, if you, for instance, and I should not be political, but it, it is called politics, right? And Heidegger's yeah. concept of thinking. So if you, for instance, think about the crowds of people in, recently in Texas or in Houston, I think, who are awaiting John Jr., John Kennedy Jr.'s uh, arrival because he was going to come back from the, the dead. That's information that was passed through technology, right? That was information that's the conspiracy theories and whatnot that are sort of permeating social media and permeating the world. And you have to wonder, okay, so think about that for just a minute. Just pause, step back, ask yourself a few important questions, and and really 
you know, wonder what's happening to the human mind if we can't even analyze something that's that, you know, seemingly absurd, but but to some people very real. So there's a, yeah, it's a it's a quandary. We're in a we're in a bit of a quandary. Um. So you work in a space with a with a lot of young kids, um, with a lot of teenagers, and technology is just so. Um, ingrained into our lives and this entrapment the psychological entrapment is, is ingrained into our lives um what is it like seeing that just on an everyday basis well it, i experience it too you don't yeah. have to be a, a teenager That's to be and to be stuck in your device right i mean for example this idea that you need to put your cell phone down for the duration of the day is is a simple it sounds simple right it sounds really easy and I'd be, I'd love to know who can really do it. Who's really capable of doing it? I know I check my messages during the day. I'm a middle-aged person. I'm just as stuck in it as you all, right? Um, I think the things that I think the thing that's really key is to question, is to create an environment in which all stakeholders—you, me, everyone—question our position vis-a-vis the world, that we don't just buy into things. Question why why is it hard to put the phone down? Why is it hard not to look at TikTok? Or why is it hard not to check your Snapchat account? What's making that hard? Because if you read the introduction to my book, which is uh, which lays out my motivation for writing this, you'll find out that the stakeholders at social media outlets, Google, Facebook, Twitter, their kids aren't using cell phones. They don't even own them. Steve Jobs' children didn't have cell phones or didn't have iPads until they were either in high school or college. Because they know, they basically say you don't get, this is again, this is a quotation, so I'm not saying it, you don't get high on your own supply, right? The engineers at Google are not letting their children have devices. You have to ask yourself why. And why is it that they're selling a product to millions and millions of other people while they're also safeguarding their own family members? So, so I think it affects all of us. It's not just you all as teenagers and as young adults. Um, if you look at, for instance, one of my classes where I allow music to be played in earbuds, right? Most of the time, the music is just an excuse to have the, the phone open so that the Snapchat can be verified or whatever. If I point that out, they immediately defensively flip the phone over. And I say, well, I'd like to be able to allow music, but maybe we need a common speaker, right? Um, it's, it's a quandary. Again, it's a, it, we're, we're a little stuck in this mess. And it, it just is important to ask why. How do we take the first steps to asking why? It seems like a simple task, but I feel like sometimes it seems very overwhelming to like open yourself up to all of these questions. How do you do this in a manageable way? I think you just have to wake up in the morning and decide um, little things, for instance, these and, and again, I'm a highly overly educated kind of, a literate human being. I have a timer on my social media. I mean, that's as ridiculous as it's become, right? I have a timer. My phone reminds me when I've reached my 20-minute limit. Okay, you've stared at your phone long enough. My guilty pleasure is Twitter, which is 
you know, an obscene array of middle school insults being lobbed at others. You know, it's it's not the highbrow news outlet that some people treat it as. Um, I put a timer on it, and I but I also remind myself when I, for instance, I've forgotten my phone at home several times this year. The only issue for me with that is that it unlocks Google for me, so I have to find a workaround. But when I get here and I'm slightly anxious by the fact that I've forgotten it at home, I say to myself, you know, okay, you've lived a large part of your life without this device. You really only got in your life 20, 30 years ago. Leave it. Just let it be. Um, and remind yourself you're going to live if you don't have it. It is not a, it's not an appendage. It is a device. Um, treat it that way. Um, earlier you were talking a lot about art. I just kind of wanted to go back to that. Do you think looking at art or creating art helps you question absolutely absolutely 100 percent. or i wouldn't do what i do yeah. um i think being able to put something new into the world being able to create a film being able to create a painting or an artwork um, makes you look at the world with fresh eyes you have to see what's around you you have to be able to appreciate the the present moment right I think there's something incredibly mindful about making art or experiencing art. Um, it happens that the artists I look at are largely installation artists, except for the videographers at the end. The video essay is really powerful. It's one of the most powerful video essays I've ever seen. Um, I think it really, each one of those in, in moments really puts me, at least as the viewer, as the audience, in a place of absolute contemplation. What am I experiencing? What is this about? What, it, what am I getting from it? What am, what's inspiring me? What's unnerving me? What's making me want to recoil? What's making me want to jump in? Do you see what I mean? And I think that interrupts, um, it absolutely interrupts our kind of numbed condition and, and as a creator or as an audience, it does. It has something powerful to give us. Music does the same thing. Music is incredibly powerful. So. When taking a step back and looking at this whole process and years of writing and research and thinking and editing, what are the larger implications or lessons you really took in a way that you think would be helpful for other people to internalize? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I happen to love learning. So I, I happen to really love reading. And I happen to also love writing and thinking about what I'm reading about. Um, I think it's useful insofar as I can, I can now be super helpful to someone who's, who has a paper to write. I can be... Um, where it comes into play, because I certainly don't lecture on these ideas in my classes, because I think I would probably lose 95% of the students. But, but I can say, yeah, I get how that's overwhelming. I get how starting on a blank page is hard. I, I totally understand how, you know, crafting an outline and really thinking about the structure of your writing is challenging, because I remember bucking up against this kind of formulaic approach that they had at this PhD level where they would create this academic writing scaffold and we were really strongly encouraged to go with it. 
Um, and I remember thinking, God, this is so rigid. And now I, my point is, it is so helpful. And so I think the implications are that I can deliver that to someone in a 10th or 11th grade class or even a senior. Um, it helped my writing a lot. It helped my thinking a lot. And it also broadened broadened my my um, broadened my way of seeing the world, even at my age. Um, what what can I do every day? What can the rest of the school do every day to kind of question? I think really pause. I think just take a moment again, ask why. Why are these things so attractive? Why can't I put this thing down? Why, if I'm scrolling, even something like Pinterest, which seems really harmless, do I keep going and going and going? What's the what's the the um, addictive quality that I'm feeling, right? That I don't want to put it down or shut the lid or um, asking why? Why is that happening to me? Why am I feeling this way? Being at least self-reflective enough to not spend six hours looking at TikTok, like one of my students confessed to me that she had spent six hours on TikTok and I was, it was thinking, wow, you have so much work to do. Um, what are the action things? Uh, you know, for example, my Graphic Design 2 students are all doing calls to action and they're, one of my students is responding to uh, social media addiction and he's creating a campaign. He's trying to create visuals that remind us, all of us, to step back and, and put it down, take a pause, just walk, go for a walk, go smell nature, whatever you need to do. Those are the kinds of things if we just think, just stop and think and let that thinking become action. Um, we recently had a new phone policy where we can't really use our phones in school at all unless we leave the building. Do you think this has helped students or do you think it's made them want to use their phones more? Well, I think that addictive quality to the phone, and this is what I'm kind of trying to hint at without, you know, laying blame at anybody's feet, because I feel it too. I check my messages. I mean, I have builders in my house. And I need to know what they're doing. And um, and it is a connection. It's a connection to your parents. It's a connection to your social network. It's a connection to the outside world, right? And so, so that's a, there are two sides to that, which is one, it's your connection, and you need that contact in order to feel that connection. On the other hand, it is deeply, deeply distracting. So um, I had a student last year, I'll leave the name out of this, but um, he liked to play games on his phone and it was almost like a soothing mechanism. It was almost like one of those spinners, you know, where if he was engaged in the game, he felt okay. He felt like he was engaged in something. And and when I would say you need, you got to put that down he'd say wait 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 I'm almost done I'm you know I'm almost done um now part of me is a little too lenient with that stuff but the other part of me was like this is an addiction this is you cannot put this down because you are now addicted to this when I said that it got a, a pretty strong defensive reaction so so you have two sides of it right you have that connection to the world you need to reach your parents you need to get things you you all of you keep your lives organized on your phones I mean your questions are on your phone on the other hand there are many who cannot separate the utility of the phone from the need quote physical visceral need for the phone 
So that's what the school's up against. There's a lot of intelligence and, and, and research that says that, that, that students are literally being harmed by their exposure to Instagram, social media, and so on and so forth. And we also see on a more global scale that, you know, the stuff that's been put out on Facebook has incited violence. Is that good? No, right? So you've got to find a balance. How do you get kids to realize the phone can be a totally utilitarian device, but on the other hand, it can be a real trap? As a kind of um, rounding out to the end, what what do you think is the future of society if we don't stop and question um, the use of technology? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think um, we're see. I think we're seeing it playing out. I think we're seeing it playing out. We're seeing people using these platforms. It's it's. What's interesting to me is the essay that I read that I was so startled by. It was written in 1949, so that's post World War II. That's crazy. That's post post atom bomb. So you think about that, right? It's post Hiroshima. It's post all of that. Um, but it's a it's a it's a person unable probably to anticipate the the ubiquity of technology in 2021, right? That's it's a long time ago that this man was considering these ideas and suggesting that we are doomed if we don't wake up. Um, I think we need to really have an awakening. I think, um, and I don't know if it's a failure of education, if it's a failure of leadership if it's a failure of our systems and how the whole thing is predicated on, on capitalist, you know, motives of, yeah, if you, if you slip in all these advertisements and you make all this money, they're into the billions of dollars of profit, you know, it's where's the failure. And I don't have an answer to what's coming, but I do know that we have major um, issues to handle right now from, you know, voting rights. Well, let's start with the most important climate collapse from which after that, everything else is just, you know, after that, what else matters? Right. And then you have the idea that all, all, you know, let's talk about the United States, that all of us are created equal. All of us should have the right to vote. That's a big one. I mean, these all things that, that are under siege, and technology is driving some of that, some of what's happening, quite a lot of what's happening. So I don't know, I don't have an answer. I just hope that um, we can at least come together and, and realize that we need to start by looking after what where we live. Well, thank you. Thank you this so much. Great. You're welcome. I hope you guys took away something and now question yourself and take a step back when you're looking and interacting with technology. See you next week.